In the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, in verses 15 and 17, we read this. If any nation comes to fight you, it is not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. While this particular prophecy looks ultimately to the millennial kingdom, it reminds us of God's sentiment toward his people in every age. We serve a God who makes big promises. They're often dramatic and astounding, and sometimes we misunderstand them, sure, or hope to apply them to the here and now when they are meant for the future hope of glory. But even so, it's clear that the Lord promises much. And no matter how many promises he has made, all of them are yes and amen. And when we last left Paul, Jesus Christ had come and made a bold promise to the discouraged apostle. The Lord said to him, Paul, you are going to preach the gospel in Rome. And of course, that promise is compounded, paired with what Ananias had told him on the very first week in his walk with the Lord, that he, Paul, would testify before governors and kings. But no sooner does the Lord make this wonderful promise that night than the devil scrambles enemy fighters to try to stop it. In our passage this evening, we'll see a well-laid, coordinated effort to destroy Paul, who, from what we can tell, has been abandoned by the church in Jerusalem and left to an uncertain fate. So how would God keep his promises to this vulnerable servant? who had no resources on his own, had no money to protect himself, no bodyguards, nothing like that. The way God does so is what we call providence. A simple definition of providence is that God provides for his will to be done. Uh, we've talked about providence before in our studies of Acts because our God is a providential God and Acts is a providential book. Uh, because God works providentially in the lives of his people. He's working providentially all the time. It's how he provides for his will to be done. Now, as we've said before, we reject the idea of what is called meticulous determinism or sometimes just called determinism as a theological stance. In determinism, God is the specific cause of every choice, action, and event in human history. In determinism, he specifically and purposefully controls the motion of every molecule. Sometimes you might hear a phrase like that used. And we reject determinism because it isn't taught in the Bible and because it would mean that God is the constant creator of evil and that man is condemned to hell for sins that he was forced to commit. Uh, when people, let's think of our own flawed justice system, our own flawed way of doing things. When individuals are forced to commit a crime under duress, even our flawed legal system says, well, obviously, they're not guilty in the same way of that crime. We look at that and say it would be wrong to punish that person who was forced to do something wrong in the same way we would punish someone who did so of their own free will. At the same time, the Bible is very clear that God will have his way, all of his way, no matter what. Nothing can stand against him. There's no doubt then that every one of his promises will be truly accomplished, whether they're big or small, national or personal, they will all be done. He's able to bring about his will while maintaining the free moral agency of mankind through 
providence. That's how he does it, right? God is so powerful that what he says will happen, his promises will be accomplished, but he's so powerful he can simultaneously grant human beings a true free will to choose whether they will accept him or reject him, to choose to go his way or not. And therefore, he accomplishes his will through what we would call providence. Now tonight, as our story unfolds, providence is showcased for us in a really fun way. We'll see how detailed it can be, how powerful it is, how quickly it can change everything, even in the worst of situations. And one of the best things we see is how human beings like you and I can have meaningful participation in God's unstoppable plan to do good on this earth and glorify himself. So let's get into it. We begin in verse 12. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. Though it lies outside the main theme of our study tonight, I would have us look for just a moment on the marvelous care our Lord shows his children. Uh, Jesus had spent the evening, as it were, sitting there beside Paul in his prison cell. Now, we, as students of the Bible and as Christians, you know, we really venerate Paul. Paul holds a, a special place, right, in our hearts and minds. Paul, the scripture writer, Paul, the apostle, Paul, the Christian. And, uh, you know, whenever I think of Paul, I always think of the positive things. But think for a moment about this, that Jesus Christ would leave heaven once more. You see, Jesus existed eternally, right? He didn't begin to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. He existed eternally, but there, as the Godhead uh, de de decided to this plan of salvation from before the foundations of the earth, Jesus said, I will go. I will leave heaven and I will put on flesh and I will remain forever the God-man. I'll live decades there on the earth in the squalor of first century Judea. I'll do all that is necessary to bridge the gap between God and man. Can you imagine, you know, Jesus, you know, it's hard for us to think about this and talk about this sometimes. I mean, Jesus has feelings, right? Uh, Jesus suffered. He was a man of sorrows. Jesus had emotions and, and things like that. Can you imagine how nice it would have been to get back to heaven, having spent eternity past there, but then leaving the glory of heaven, the perfection of heaven to come down to earth, to live in first century Israel, Judea there, experience everything he experienced, the hurt and the hunger and the rejection, the crucifixion, the beatings, all of these things, and finally be brought back, ascended into heaven, into glory again. And what do we see? He says, I'll go back again. I'm gonna go back again and spend a night in a jail cell with this guy. Not with the entire church gathered together in some camp somewhere, not with you know, you know, the most important person on the earth from the human way of thinking, but just this one individual, this one guy. Jesus said, I'm gonna clear my schedule as it were so that I can spend time with this one guy. Perhaps you've seen the famous photo of Pope John Paul II sitting in jail with the man who tried to kill him. If you don't know, the man, he, was, he had escaped from a Turkish prison. He was a murderer. He had killed somebody, escaped from a Turkish prison, went to the Vatican, attacked John Paul II, shot him four times, uh, twice in the abdomen, once in the finger, once somewhere else, I forget. And then about seven months later, the Pope went and visited him in his jail cell. 
uh, to, and he offered his, he expressed his forgiveness. And there's a very iconic picture that they snapped of the two of them meeting together in their cell. Now, think about who Paul used to be. That Paul had once been a killer, that Paul had once been the foremost enemy of Christ on the earth. There was nobody who hated Christians and hated Jesus more than Saul of Tarsus. And look at what God has done, not only to forgive him, not only to make something beautiful out of his life, but he just keeps going. He keeps pouring out love. He keeps pouring out affection. He keeps pouring out grace. And he says, you know what? I'll spend the night with you in this jail cell because I know that you are feeling discouraged. Jesus Christ didn't owe anything to Paul. Everything that Paul had received up until this point was well more than he deserved, right? It would be good enough for the Pope to go and say, I forgive you. The Pope didn't then say, and how about you come and be a part of my family? And uh, I'm gonna have you, you know, learn from me and receive everything that I have and all those kinds of things. If we saw that, we would think, well, there's something wrong with that guy. But what has Jesus done? And Jesus came and he said, what else can I give to Paul, this man who had been the chief general in the war against me? By grace, Paul had been saved, then adopted, commissioned, and there's the Lord spending an evening in chains with his friend. That's the kind of care that God has for you and for me. That's the kind of care that Jesus Christ has for you, specifically and personally in his heart. But man, poor Paul, every time he catches a break, a new danger pops up. He's getting beaten to death in the temple courtyard. Okay, soldiers rescue him, great. Well, now he's gonna be flogged, maybe flogged to death. Okay, his citizenship kicks in, that spares him. He's about to be torn apart again by an angry mob. He's yanked out of that, somehow escapes death a third time. And now we've got this conspiracy of assassins ready to kill him. It's like an action movie where the bad guy always has an unlimited number of henchmen. Who's working the payroll for these guys? These Bond villains or just any action movie. If you just sit back for a minute and say, how much does it cost to employ all of these dudes and then pay for all their guns and bullets and things like that? Maybe, I think you've, you know, these guys always have these weird machinations about taking over or whatever. You already have all of the power and money that you need. You, you have your own personal army and can apparently stock them with whatever they need. And it's, yeah, just get another 50 guys. So that's what's happening to Paul. They just keep popping up. There's actually something for us to learn here though. When it comes to your life, as far, at least the spiritual life, the smooth sailing is going to begin in eternity. It's really not going to begin before that. Until eternity, until we step into glory to be with our Lord forever, our enemies are going to persist in their efforts to discourage, derail, and destroy us. In the Bible, our enemies are sometimes categorized as the flesh, meaning our personal sin nature, which is tempted to disobey God. The world, meaning the world system in which we live, which rejects God, and then the devil. And like these 40 guys here in verse 13, they are not playing around. They mean business, your enemies do. They are dedicated to your ruin. Their whole focus is evil toward you. Think about this for a moment. This conspiracy is almost certainly a suicide mission for at least some of these guys. What they're talking about is attacking Paul, who's going to be escorted by at least two Roman guards, battle-hardened Roman soldiers who, whose whole purpose in their career and their life is to kill, right? 
and they say, you know what, we're gonna come at Paul with everything that we've got. We're gonna kill him no matter what. Almost certainly, these guys, they're not stupid. They know that, hey, some of us are not making it out of this fight. And yet it was worth it to them. They say, oh yeah, I sign up for that. I'm ready. I'll be the first in line. And the same is true of our spiritual enemies. Think of the flesh. Think of someone who has given that maybe that you know, or maybe before you were a Christian, what the flesh was willing to lose and destroy and ruin just to get another moment of earthly pleasure or to get that temporal goal. Um, it's really visible f- when we see folks who are trapped in addiction, right? And we see you know, people who love those individuals and care about them. They often try to reach out to them and they say, hey, you're destroying your life but the flesh is willing to kill itself to disobey God and to go the opposite way of God's way. Our enemies, our spiritual enemies, the flesh, the devil, the world, they are willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish their mission. The devil, he's got nothing to lose. I mean, he's, he's at rock bottom as far as, as far as his future, as far as his prospects. He is without hope. So he has nothing to lose. His only goal is to kill and destroy, to ruin and to maim. That's all he's about. And so they are not kidding. Now, we also notice that these are bad odds for Paul. We might call them 40 to one. Even if some of the guys were killed in the melee, there's effectively no chance that Paul is going to survive this attack. Verse 14, these men went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. The leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the elders, they didn't balk at this plan. They were happy to go along with it. They supported it. What a gross, sad moment in the history of their nation. You understand that these are supposed to be the supposed holiest of all people in the entire nation, the people who held the keys to, to heaven, the people who, to whom you went if you wanted to know about God, the leaders of their society. And uh, the, the simple devotional application is this. We need men and women of integrity and honesty to lead us, right? That's what we actually need on a practical level. And we have the um, privilege and the um, you know, wonderful freedom of saying we get to choose who we want to represent us. And I understand that this issue can become very, very difficult and very emotional and things like that. And, and there's lots of ethical arguments over the lesser of two evils. All of that notwithstanding, what we actually need in leaders are people of honesty and people of integrity, right? because you can have the wrong person in the right position, they're still wrong, right? And so you had these people, the elders of Israel, Pharisees, all these things, but they weren't men of integrity. They weren't men of honesty. And what are they doing? They say, yeah, we'll sign off on this completely immoral, completely corrupt, completely sinful action because it suits us. And so Uh, You know, sadly, it's becoming harder and harder for us to find candidates of integrity and honesty and accountability and those sorts of things. But that's what we need. 
And I just encourage all of us, since we're not gonna vote anytime soon, I just encourage all of us to kind of tuck that away. Who do you actually want at the helm of Babylon? Do you want Nebuchadnezzar at the helm? He may wield a lot of power. Or do you want Daniel at the helm? Well, obviously we want Daniel at the helm. And so I just throw that out there. Verse 16, the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Whoa, wait a minute, Uncle Paul? (laughs) Old Uncle Paul? Man, this brings up so many questions. There's a lot of characters in the Bible where we just don't have hardly any personal information about. Moses is one of those guys. He's writing his books. He doesn't hardly tell us anything about his like, personal life or his upbringing. He skips over all this kind of stuff. So Paul's an uncle. Well, how big was his family? Were his family Christians? You know, we have all kinds of questions. And in the end, they're unanswerable because the Bible's silent on it. There are a few things we might observe though. First, we saw in chapter 21 that when Paul got to Jerusalem, he did not lodge with his family, right? He lodged with Manasin, however you pronounce that, silent M. So he didn't lodge with them. Second, you know, this is a little bit of speculation, but just kind of trying to come at this with common sense. It seems unlikely that his sister and nephew were practicing Christians as they had some kind of access either to the chambers of the rulers of the Jews, or at least the nephew was let in on the plan in confidence by some friend. If they were card-carrying Christians who were going to you know, meet with the apostles all the time, they probably would have been identified by now. Uh, so clearly, though, this nephew had both love for his uncle and dedication to do what was right, even when it wasn't easy. Now, it's not clear just how old he was. There's a term that's gonna be used of him three times, young man. And scholars who know things point out that that term in the Greek could be used for kind of a little guy, all the way up to a man in his late 20s, maybe even early 30s. It was kind of a a catch-all word for a couple of phases of life from our perspective. So it's hard to tell because on the one hand, He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's thinking quickly. He can think and speak clearly, right? He doesn't talk like a little baby boy or anything like that. On the other hand, when the commander talks to him, we're gonna see he kind of treats him the way you would treat a child, not a full-grown man. So we're not exactly sure. However old he was, we should be absolutely astounded and impressed with his bravery. Here he was testifying against conspiratorial murderers going to the Roman fortress and facing the occupiers of his nation to bring this message. I remember once we were in Peru and we visited a prison there in Peru uh, and it was hard to tell who we should be more afraid of, the inmates or the guards, right? It's because it's a different way of doing things down there. It's not our home, you know, it's not our homeland, you know. I don't know if the COs there are like COs here. I have quite a strong inkling that they are not based off of what the locals have told us. So the whole thing was very unsettling, right? It's a little bit nerve wracking. And we were there in a group and about half of the members of our group went to this prison like every week all the time. And they knew people there and, and, and all of that, right? And I was still kind of like, what's gonna happen? Am I gonna get eaten when I'm in this place, right? <laughs> this young man goes alone, goes alone to the Roman garrison. Though we don't know much about him, his example is helpful to us. First, if God is stirring up your heart with some burden to do something that is right, then do it. 
It may be difficult or frightening, but it also may be a powerful part of God accomplishing his amazing providence. This young man, he was in the right place at the right time. He heard this and he thought, I should do something about this. He wasn't just gonna look the other way and he felt obviously a burden in his heart to, I have to tell someone. And thank God that he did. He was the key moment of providence was working through him, right? And so if we have that stirring in our hearts, we wanna pay attention to it and be sensitive to it because you might be an agent of providence in that moment, really important. Second, particularly to you young people here tonight, listen, your lives and your conduct matter. Not someday, they matter right now. History can turn on your willingness to do what is right, to stand for the truth. See what God can do in the Bible through a Samuel or a David, an Esther or a Daniel. Dan, uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they changed world history because they were willing to literally just stand up. God said, here's what I want you guys to do. Stand up while everyone else is bowing down. And they did that and history changed, right? Because that story has been told in every place and in every generation since because it became part of the Holy Scripture. It also was a dramatic event in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the worst man in the entire world at the time. And that was used as part of God reaching out to that horrible, horrible man who one day finally acknowledged, oh, the God of these three boys, the God of Daniel is the true God and he's even willing to save a man like me. And so your lives matter and can be used in incredible ways. And though it may seem like the moments of greatest significance are still far away, well, when I grow up, X, Y, and Z, that I, we, I understand the truth is every moment of your life and our lives, all of us here represent it, not just to young people, but every moment of our lives is valuable in God's plan. There's an interesting contrast in this story, at least when it comes to the language of Acts. Paul's nephew is gonna be called a young man three times. And this young man is found overcoming fear, risking much for the sake of another. And the result is that Caesar himself would hear the gospel from one of the foremost preachers of the gospel, not to mention King Herod, Felix, Festus, and countless more. Now, the comparison is this. Paul himself was once called a young man. They, Luke used the same word of him. And when Luke used it of Paul, it was when he was guarding the clothes of those who murdered Stephen. One young man going this way into the truth, one young man going that way, rejecting the truth. And the results couldn't be more stark. One was saving a life, one was destroying a life. And so you young people in particular, right now you can be that young man, that young woman through whom God is working out his plan to impact the lives of the people around you, working out his plan to develop something in you, or quite frankly, working out his plan to uh, pivot the uh, momentum of history on something that you do in your life. So what sort of young person are you today? What sort of pursuits fill your hours? Verse 17 says, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander, and he said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? 
This would, be, would have been even more nerve wracking than just going. The motions of Providence are not always a walk in the park. Sometimes it's a walk through the Red Sea. Can you imagine for a moment, we can't because it's unfathomable to us, but try to imagine how nerve wracking it really would have actually been to step foot into the Red Sea. I mean, they had seen God work his miracles and things like that, but it was clear that they were in a state of fear, right? They cried out to Moses, we're all gonna be killed, right? So they're all kind of freaked out anyway. And then Moses says, yeah, go ahead. You're good, you're good. And there's these towering walls of water. Who knows how high they would have been? And you have to walk through it. Now, that's an amazing moment of providence that we celebrate and you know, we depict in great you know, uh, pieces of art and in movies and things like that. And it's awesome. But yeah, but I didn't have to walk through the thing. It's kind of like at the carnival. It's fun to see the dunk tank, not as fun to sit at the dunk tank, if you've ever been that, and say, oh, I wonder how good this kid's arm is as they're throwing the softballs at the thing. And so providence, being a part of it, sometimes can be a nerve-wracking experience. Now, Paul, for his part, did not just let go and let God. We hear that sometimes. Paul didn't do that, not even a little bit. He took the situation seriously and he made wise choices based off of what he knew and how the Lord was leading him. He made informed choices. He didn't just say, okay, thanks, nephew. We're just gonna sit here until something happens. No, that, that's what happened. That's what happened. God provided this kid so that we could put a course of action into practice, right? And so just because we believe God is going to accomplish his promises by providence and just because we know that God works miracles and God will have his way doesn't mean that all of a sudden we become just lifeless, inert, you know, vessels that, you know, we just wait for God to do everything around us. The Bible shows God's people as being people of wisdom, right? People of understanding, people who apply God's word in their choices and behaviors. And so just because God makes promises and then works out his providence doesn't mean we're excluded from action or participation. Quite the opposite, actually. Think of some of the great biblical moments of providence that we love. David killing the giant. That's an amazing moment of providence. But first, he gathered five smooth stones. There's no slingshot without the stones, right? And David went and made that, made that preparation. The starving widow there in Kings borrowed every jar she could from friends and family, and then they were miraculously filled until there was no more left. No jars, no oil, right? She had to go out and do that and participate in how she had been led. The disciples got to be a part of two of Jesus's greatest feeding miracles, right? Feeding the multitudes, the 5,000 and the 4,000. But first, they had to go canvas the people for a few loaves and fish. The Lord gave them some direction. Hey, why don't you group them in 50s and 100s and that sort of thing? And so they were participating. They were active. They weren't just sort of being super spiritual and mystical and waiting for you know, an orb to appear and God will solve everything in that way. Now, God could have just said a word and remade reality according to his promises, right? We think of like uh, the genie from Aladdin. I mean, with, with all due respect and reverence, God could act like that, where he just snaps and everything's topsy-turvy and everything's fixed and all those people are gone. He could do that, right, of course, but he doesn't. That's not how he does things. Instead, we see his will being accomplished through supernatural and natural means. So first, this young man happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear about this plot, and no one knew that he was Saul's nephew. Now, that alone probably took hundreds or thousands of providential moves as God 
got this individual into position. Who knows what the string of events were from eternity's perspective to get him at the right place at the right time to hear what he needed to hear. Then somehow he made it right into the heavily guarded garrison. Some suggest that Paul would have been treated really loosely. Oh, he's a Roman citizen. They wouldn't have even cared. They just would have let you know, people come and go. I don't think so. This guy is, has been the cause of multiple riots in the last couple of days. And don't forget, he could potentially bring Roman judgment down on the commander, the centurions, and these soldiers because they had illegally bound him. They had violated Roman law. I don't think they were giving him a long leash at all. And yet his nephew had no trouble getting in. Next, we see that God granted Paul and this young man favor in the eyes of the centurion and the commander. Those guys could have been conspiratorial themselves, right? They could have been saying, you know, if we get rid of Paul, that solves a lot of our problems. It's a little extra paperwork, but solves a lot of problems. But no, that's not what's going on. And so God had made this clear path for all of these things to happen in quick succession. Even though I'm guessing the whole garrison was on really high alert. Look, think about what's been going on this week leading up to the inauguration. They moved 20,000 National Guardsmen into D.C., and all of Jerusalem was trembling with unrest. They'd had multiple riots. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So I think they're on high alert, and yet God made a way. He just cut right through all of that, brought this kid, or however old he was, brought him right in there to deliver the message that he had naturally and through supernatural means been able to hear without being recognized or known to be Paul's nephew, and then had the courage and wherewithal to go and say, I'm gonna do something about it no matter the cost. Verse 20, the Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though, they're gonna be, uh, as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they've killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for your consent. Consider for a moment the ramifications of what this young man is doing he actually might be signing his own death warrant for all he knows. I mean, these are killers who said, we're gonna dedicate our lives to killing Paul. We'll do whatever it takes. And he's standing in the way of these Jewish zealots and he's enlisting hated Rome to help him. Despite the pressure and the danger, he was going to tell the truth. In this action, we are reminded of the power of the truth. Listen, in this era of relativism with all sorts of new truths being thrown at us all the time, we remember what the Bible says, that the truth, God's truth sets us free, it sanctifies us, and we are to stand in it. The truth is powerful in a world of schemes and politics and conspiracies and rage. And so hold fast to the truth, Christian especially you young believers, hold to the truth which is revealed on the pages of Scripture. Because this boy told the truth, Paul stands before Caesar. That's the deal. And that's an amazing thing. God used that simple choice to do something truly remarkable, something unpredictable. That's the way that God still operates today. Now, of course, Paul's nephew was just one of many links in that chain of God's providence, getting uh, Paul before the Caesar, but we see it's just as meaningful, just as essential as any other link in the chain. And so is your service and your obedience and your willingness to be used by Jesus Christ. Verse 22, so the commander dismissed this young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you've informed me about this. Another bit of providence here, the commander immediately believed this report. 
He doesn't follow up. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't order an independent investigation. Feels a lot like these are not the droids you're looking for. Oh, yeah, it must be true, you know? And it's a good thing he didn't wait or hesitate. And so clearly the Lord was operating also in his mind and heart to accept this testimony and respond quickly. Verse 23, he summoned two of his centurions and he said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. In a move of breathtaking providence, what was 40 to one against Paul is now 10 to one in his favor, like that, like that. If you were looking at the odds and saying it's 40 to one, then I'm gonna be killed. I can't, those are not odds you would take, by the way. If anybody ever offers you 40 to one odds that you're gonna die, don't take that bet. And look how quickly the Lord said, actually, it's 10 to one in your favor, more than 10 to one in your favor. 470 soldiers are gonna go with you and deliver you where you need to go. The advantage was reversed to a stunning degree. Verse 25, he wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man has been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge that they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law, and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence." Now, we know that Lysias was playing fast and loose with the truth here, right? Uh, we've been, we know what really happened. He removed the mistakes, illegal mistakes that he had made, and he makes himself the hero. But you know what? The, this letter must have been read out loud because Luke knows it and records it for us. But Paul doesn't rat him out. Paul doesn't say, actually, he doesn't become an actually guy. He doesn't go after his job or his head or anything like that. Now, Lysias wasn't a believer, but what do we see? We see him repaying Paul's grace with graciousness himself and goodness. I mean, not the lies, but that, what does he say there? He says, I'm gonna use my influence. He doesn't have to do this. He says, I'm gonna use my influence to say, hey, this guy isn't guilty of anything. He shouldn't be killed. He shouldn't be arrested. I'm just putting that out there. He didn't have to say that. But when God's people act as salt and light in the world, it makes a difference. It elevates the, the world that we move in, Right? Kind answer turns away wrath. Grace is something that has an impact even on unbelievers. Verse 31, so the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. It's a sad milestone here. As far as Acts is concerned, we have left Jerusalem for the last time. After so many chances, that's it. How many times had God tried to reach out to the Sanhedrin, tried to reach out to the elders of Israel? How many apostles had he sent? How many times had they heard the preaching? How many, how many, how many? And that's it. It's over now, at least as far as this narrative goes. Paul's leaving reminds us of the glory departing from the temple in Ezekiel, a sad, sad moment. But despite their rejection, God will still accomplish his many promises to his special nation. One day... In our future, all Israel will be saved as they look on him who they pierced. He will keep those promises because he keeps all of his promises. He doesn't say, just kidding, they're for these people now. That's not a promise. That's a jerk thing to do. I bought you this present. 
Oh, okay, I didn't like that. It's for him now. Look, I gave the present after all. We'd be like, wait, what's happening right now? God's gonna keep all of his promises to Israel. His plan and program for them are on hold right now during this church age, but he will not abandon them. Verse 33, when these men reentered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. And he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. More providence at play. Paul was born in the right province to be under Felix's jurisdiction. That is a long providence, right? Which this would open the door for him to then testify before King Agrippa and to others. And so all kinds of things happening uh, in God's will here. Now, here's what's interesting. Look how quickly everything happened. In one night, right? In, In just one night, everything went from Paul being about to be murdered to now Paul is speaking to a governor and he's gonna speak to a king and all of these incredible things happened. A rapid flurry of providential activity. And yet we know, if you're a Bible student who knows the book of Acts, you know that Paul is gonna sit there for two years with nothing happening. Uh, I thought we were going to Rome. I I thought we were working a plan here. And he would wait for trials and verdicts and all these things, and he's nowhere near getting to Rome. Why is it that sometimes God moves instantaneously and sometimes his plan takes many years or even decades? Of course, we can't know the answer to that, certainly in our own lives, but we can see things like this. Some scholars say that it was during these two years of waiting right here that Luke was able to travel around and research for the other book he would write, the Gospel of Luke. I'm glad Paul had a stopover for a couple of years so that we could have the glorious Gospel of Luke. At any given moment, God is not just accomplishing one thing, but an innumerable set of things in thousands upon thousands of situations and lives. Sometimes the main fulcrum in some act of his will will be one boy doing the right thing. Other times it's gonna take deep complexity. Our confidence is that no matter the situation, God is able to do whatever he has promised. And not only is he able, he will accomplish it. He is accomplishing it. And whether that accomplishing takes one night or an entire lifetime, it's clear that God is working. He busies himself without rest, without hesitation, without fail on your behalf and mine. And then he invites us to join in with him in this dizzying work of grace. He doesn't need us, but he loves us and he brings himself pleasure and glory by utilizing us in his service. That service may appear to be something great and monumental, like Paul preaching the gospel before the worst tyrant alive on planet earth, or it may be the simple action of telling the truth to one person. I've said it before, I'm sure I'll say it again, but the Bible reveals that the very countenance of your face can be used by God for his eternal purposes. Daniel 1, the way your face looks can be used by God to impact eternities and to be used for his purposes. The borrowing of a jar, the lending of a jar can be used for providence. Whatever you do, do it from a heart as something done for the Lord, the Bible says. Not only because this is our duty as citizens to his kingdom, but because he is able to take our lowly tuppence, our measly mites, and change eternal destinies with them. These are the benefits enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. If you watch the the Mary Poppins sequel, 
It's been out a long time, so I'm gonna ruin it for you. So if you've watched the Mary Poppins sequel, at the end, the family thinks that they've lost everything and they've got nothing to their name. And Dick Van Dyke comes out and he says, oh, but the tuppence from the first movie. He says, your father gave us those tuppence and we've been investing those two tiny little coins this whole time and now you're like a millionaire. Whoa. So God can take the tuppence of our face, of our telling the truth, of our lending of a jar, of all of these things, and accomplish eternal work, change the destiny of an individual who was headed to hell and now is going to heaven, can even pivot the whole of human history if it's according to his purposes. These are the benefits enjoyed by the servants of the Lord.